Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Sarah Jane Bentley. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. And we are here to answer your questions about Marilyn Robinson's novel, Home, We've been we've been at at these discussions for six or seven weeks now, and now we turn to your thoughts, your opinions, the dissonances that are in your brains, and we will attempt to uh, solve the problems that we've caused over the last six weeks of episodes. Before we do that, though, I want to remind you that next week we are going to dive into Walker Percy's novel, The Movie Goer, and uh, good old Tim will be back. Yeah, I know he's very excited about chatting with us about The Movie Goer. So uh, the reading schedule has been posted uh, on the Facebook group, where you can of course join. And then um, also it has been posted in our email newsletter. If you go to closereads.substack.com, you can see the link to the most recent email with that schedule. So we will read part one uh, for next week. Um, it's about 60 pages. There wasn't a good natural break earlier than that. So um, it's a little longer than most of the, the readings that we do. So just be forewarned and plan accordingly. Don't procrastinate if you are one of the three people who are on the podcast that have to read in order to have a conversation about it. This is a note to myself. Okay. So we are here, as I said, to answer your questions about home. So let's dive right into it because there are always plenty of questions and we never quite get to as many as we'd like. So I'm going to start with, um, I'm going to start with this one. It's something that we have discussed fairly often over the last several weeks. Sarah Jane, I want you to answer this first um, and then we'll flip it over to Heidi. Krista asks, why does Marilyn Robinson's books uh, cause such polarity and feelings? It seems like you either love them or hate them and then need to vehemently defend your feelings. I don't think Krista is specifically saying that you feel this way, that you feel like you need to you know, vehemently defend your feelings about the books, but um, I'm going to ask you first anyway. So... Extreme Sides seems like you either love or hate this book. And in either case, readers often feel the need to defend themselves. Why do you think that is? I'm really glad Krista asked this question because I'm, I guess I'm not that aware of how readers have received Marilyn Robinson's texts. Um, certainly the people I work with and the people I've spoken to about the novels absolutely love them. I've only heard great things about Marilyn Robinson. So I've yet to meet someone who has this polar opposite opinion. Um, mm. I wonder what might cause that. I mean, could it be because she is writing from, um, with a particular worldview and a, a very kind of unfashionable philosophy, if you like, and that mm. that is something that um, a wi the wider readership doesn't want these days? Mm. Um, yeah, it is fair to point out that she has won the Pulitzer Prize, been a finalist for a lot of other awards. So among um, critics, among, you know, um, the, the wider literary world, she seems pretty well beloved. So I guess, does, does it, Heidi, would you say then that the, that polarity that Krista is speaking to is something just kind of among a wider readership? Is that where you would 
seem like it seems like I it would think, come from. I mean, I don't want to read into what Krista means, but I read it. I, I think she's referring to the emotional response that people have to it, the sadness. And some people like to feel sad because they're reading a book and some people really don't like that. Um, and I think yeah. that um, Sarah Jane made a really good point about the worldview. Uh, and I also think that this is, uh, she's Marilyn Robinson is intentionally exploring some of the fault lines within American culture. And so uh, whether religious or relational or emotional or historical, mm -hmm. uh, racial. Um, and, and because of that, I think there's always going to be a strong response to that, um, you know, viscerally, emotionally. And so I think that that dividing line is, you know, provokes a very strong reaction, whether negative or positive. And I, I think that's fair. I think that's the sign of a great novelist. Mm. Um, there was a, uh, a follow-up question here that, <laughs> that spoke to what you were saying, I think. But of course, in true podcast fashion, I cannot forgive, cannot find it. So if not. I find it, we'll come, right. we'll come back to it. Um, one of the things that I think I want to turn to another question that Krista asked kind of in connection with this. And, I, and it's interesting because Krista says that home reminds me so much of Hannah Coulter. And she asked if we can compare and contrast the two books. Um, and one of the things that I was thinking when I saw that question is in connection with Krista's other question here is that the responses to Barry are often different than the ones to Robinson because Hannah Coulter, for example, one of the things they both have in common is that it is in moments, at least deeply sad. And yet there seems to be readers in general seem to have a different approach to his work. Do you, why do you think that is? So, I mean, Hannah Coulter, very sad things happen. Things that arguably are just as sad as the things that at least are referenced in, in home, but a book like that, very few people read that book and think never reading that again. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas there's people who might read home. I've heard of people who might not read home, who might read home and say, well, I can see that she's talented, but that is not for me. And those same people wouldn't do the same thing with Hannah Coulter. Why do you think that is? So this is another way of also asking, answering her question about comparing and contrasting those two novels and then the work of Barry and Robinson. Sarah Jane, are you a um, Wendell Berry reader? Yeah. Um, yeah, so Hannah Coulter is... I've never read anything. Oh, you've never read. Oh, you're... There's, there's a lag there. There's a lag. I think it, I think it maybe if recovered. Oh, sorry. It's okay. We can I've hear you. I've never read... Okay. Go ahead, Heidi. I'll answer your question <laughs> again if you'd like. <laughs> All right. Sarah Jane, are you a Wendell Berry reader? I've never read any Wendell Berry before, which is uh, something I'm ashamed to admit, I must say. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't encourage shame, but in, <laughs> they're also like very, very American novels. And yeah. so is in some ways, Marilyn Robinson. And in the same way that the great British novels speak to American culture as well. I mean, there's, there's some interchangeability there, but there's something about Wendell Berry that just captures the small town American ethos. And what's interesting about the, the comparison of the two is you can tell not only is there a different style, um, but there's a different goal. 
in reading Wendell Berry versus reading Marilyn Robinson. Uh, Wendell Berry is inviting modern Americans to return to a way of thinking about our country and our culture and its relationships uh, and, and its land and geography in an old kind of way. He's he is a true conservative, not in the not in the flawed American sense of it, but in the 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 zeal to preserve and conserve what is good um, about a culture. Um, and in doing that, he writes these characters like in uh, in stories like in Hannah Coulter that demonstrate the full kind of richness and grief of the American life, small town American life. And, and so because I think of those, his particular mindset, the sadness, the weight of sadness in his, in his books, although they have just to, to David's point, like to your point, David, they're just as sad. They have almost the same, kind of and I'm almost the same kind of circle of relationships when the adult children grow up and leave and they don't come back Mm -hmm. and they lose Mm -hmm. they lose what their parents are trying to give to them Mm -hmm. and there is they don't value it in that yeah they reject it um but there's something about this these threads of um hope and love and tradition that weave throughout Wendell Berry that have kind of this redemptive backdrop to it that I think Marilyn Robinson, if not, if she's not missing, it's harder to find. Um, and it doesn't mm. seem to be an invitation. I, I don't think, I don't see in Marilyn Robinson an invitation to value this life. She's, she is not that it's not, not that you can't find value in it, but it's not the same kind of tell us or uh, mm. end goal that that Barry is going for and I think that missing piece adds like another kind of layer of existential um, uh, kind of void to it a little bit do you mean essentially that Barry leans into um, nostalgia and then preserving the things that that nostalgia represents in a way that Robinson doesn't seem to do at least on purpose yeah maybe so I mean I think that He's he's saying that this kind of life has something, some permanence and solidity to offer. And I and I'm not sure Robinson is saying that. Hmm. Hmm. Or if she is, I haven't found it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Let's move on to another question here. Um, Anne wants to know, uh, she says, Jack's difficult birth is mentioned several times in the novel. And he makes mention of his troubled infancy. Why is this? Was his father and so the rest of the family primed from his birth to think of him as ill-fated? That would seem superstitious. That may not be what's happening, but it is significant that his difficult birth is mentioned so much. What do we think about this? I think births in the novel are really significant and have been um, throughout the trilogy. It's something that features a lot in Lila, especially. So... Mm there's something um, symbolic, I suppose, about this idea that Jack's mother really laboured to give birth to him. There seem to be, I don't know if there are questions about his origin, but it seems that he is um, a child of strife and trouble and that this is part of his character almost. And... Mm. Well, I don't know. Having recently just had a baby, 
don't know if, <laughs> if I can talk about this in this way, but I think you can tell something about the character of your child based on how they behave in the womb and then, and then what the whole experience is of um, labour. So I wonder if that's something that Marilyn Robinson is drawing on. And um, it certainly seems to have created um, a great deal of, a great burden for his father, Jack Boughton. Mm. And mm. perhaps there was, it was Marion Robinson suggesting there was some kind of danger surrounding the birth. Perhaps the mother never recovered fully. Perhaps that's something we'll find out in the next novel. I haven't read it. Mm. Heidi. I don't have anything Amanda to ha- add. So. Well, Amanda has a follow-up. She says, I was thinking also, does the fact that his father mentions his difficult birth so much have an effect on how Jack feels about himself? Does this make Jack feel guilty or different for being difficult from birth? Possibly. I, I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Those are the kinds of things that sink into the head of a child. Um, and there's, it's not just his birth, is it? It's it's his entire childhood. Uh, uh, it's, it's the way that Jack thinks of himself and the way that he is spoken to by his family puts him, you know, outside the camp, so to speak. Mm. Uh, and, and we are left as readers, not knowing how much of that is hearsay, how much of that was absorbed by Jack, how much of it was a self-perpetuating cycle, how much of it is true. Um, and, and, and we just, we just don't, we just don't know. We're observers of people who are observing the past. Mm. It, it would be very interesting to go back and track those conversations in which Jack mentions the difficult birth and try to connect uh, any common ground in, in, or any commonness between the reactions that Jack has to that. This is the kind of question that in looking back, we could do what you, we could say, well, this is how this might work psychologically or whatever, but to really look at the text from this perspective would be very fascinating, but it would it would not not be time consuming <laughs> to go back and reread it with mm-hmm. this in mind. You'd have to almost have a list of questions to go reread it, you know, another time with that, with that in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Let's do, let's do this one uh, from Barbara. She says, only Teddy seems to be the one to check in on Jack, not counting glory, of course. What is the story with the other siblings? Robinson created this family of eight, but we only read about three of them. So why have so many in the family and not write about them? Heidi, I'll go back to you for the for this one for the for the first time. Uh, so the question is, why don't we hear more from the other siblings? Yeah, I mean, if I think the question is also, I mean, that's you could just say, well, that's the story she decided to tell, but why does she have eight siblings, but only one and a half participate in the novel? Only one and a half seem to show interest in in Jack, or at least in a way that is uh, uh, lived out in the story. Yeah. I, (laughs) I think that one of the, the, the things that this novel has highlighted for me is how, easy it is to read oneself into an interpretation of a novel um Mm -hmm. and to in a novel this complex and this nuanced uh and this this rich with memory and interpretation from the characters themselves it is there it is interesting the things i found that i noticed and the things i didn't notice and i'm sure that's true for all of us um and and i say that in response to this particular question, because I thought that when I read that 
question in the in the Q&A thread, I was intrigued by it because I thought I had read something else. Like I had read these kids are calling all the time. They're not really visiting, but they're mm-hmm. calling all the time and they're back for yeah. holidays and they bring the grandkids. And, um, and so there's just this kind of dead space in between because days are long. And if you don't have a lot of people in your house, then it, it feels lonely, even if you have visitors and plans and those kinds of things. And so, um, but I don't think the question is wrong because we do have three lonely people in a house without a lot of, and only one family visit in the whole time. So from Teddy, and so it's a valid question. I just noticed by the question, how, how we each interpret it, you know, interpret these things differently. Uh, But I, I think there are many children for the very good reason, structurally, that it's easy to get lost in a big family. And one of the characteristics of all of these children is that they feel loved, but not seen by their parents. Um, And again, the absence of the mother and kind of this sense of a father who loves them so desperately, but doesn't seem to know them at all is very conducive to a big family. You know, that's, that's Mm -hmm. how I would write it too, if I were writing this novel. Um, So I think that that makes sense. And then kind of this sense of having had a big family, having had busyness and chaos for so many years, and then now the house is full of echoes and memories only uh, adds to the pathos of the tale. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons that it's written that way. Sarah Jane, do you have anything to add to that? Not much to add, but I, I would agree. And just reiterate something we said in a previous conversation, which is that Marilyn Robinson kind of got fixated with these particular characters. So, I mean, it is kind of what you were saying, David, this is the story she wanted to tell, but I see the family of eight more as a background to these characters who she is fascinated by. Um, And that it is necessary for Barton to have a family of eight because it creates this interesting contrast with Ames, who has the deceased daughter and then just the one son. And I think there's there's a kind of... I don't want to say caricature, but it's certainly as an English person, read a Welsh person, whatever you like reading the novel, I would expect <laughs> a Presbyterian pastor in the Midwest to have a really big family. And that's kind of um, sort of what, what ought to happen in a way. So mm. I think as Heidi was saying that the family of eight adds back necessary background to de- to deepen the characters that we, we meet in the novel and it's not necessary that we explore all eight of them. Yeah, I think that also at the time, the two children would have been less common than the eight children would have been in, in the rural upper Midwest of the first half of the 19, uh, 20th century. Um, people had more children then, um, just generally speaking. But I do think, I'm glad you brought up Ames because I was thinking about how... Um, Ames has Lila in his life now. He he has the woman who almost like brings, creates a home out of it, right? It creates a home out of his life. He, he, she takes this sort of professorial academic pastor's home, which is basically a glorified study that he eats and sleeps in, and she turns it into a into a into an actual home, and that's talked about in in Gilead. And the opposite, in a sense, has happened to Boughton, where he had this woman who held things together. And while we don't get a lot of her personality, it's clear that she was a sort of um, um, 
binding agent for all of them. And while she's gone, now that she's gone, um, they about and has lost that sort of touchstone. I'm using words that are loosely categorized in the same way and metaphors, but at the same time mixing my metaphors, but you know what I mean? Um, and so he, he, that touchstone being gone causes Lila's brief appearance in the novel and what, and Glory's attempts to bring them together to be that much more full of, I think, pathos because she is not able to do what she would think the mother would be maybe a little more capable of doing between father and son. Once one parent is often a sort of mediator between the other parents and children, or sometimes, you know, that's, that's not always the case, but structurally it makes for a nice, it would make for a nice bit of storytelling. But when she's gone, that absence then makes the whole family more, their uh, separateness, the, the way they're so disparate, more profound. And I think that if she was living, that would feel less, less realistic too right so yeah i i actually did hear i think i remember passages where it says you know that glory's fielding calls and things like that but this is also a very narrow amount of time in in this particular book and you know how many times can they visit over a small period of time without christmas or something around you know um i think so i think she specifically told the story with without that kind of hovering over it um and also the other part is it makes Teddy's role in the story more draws it out more. And he's the one who was pursuing his brother. Um, and so it, it offers Teddy more. He's able to come to the fore, you know, to the, uh, the foreground of the story to the front of the stage in a way that he wouldn't have been able to, if, if all the other siblings were there most likely. Okay. I've rambled enough. Let's go on. Um, Let's see. What was there was one I wanted to do. That was like that. Okay, here's one. Uh, Sarah, my asks this one. Heidi, I'm bringing this up because you mentioned the idea of being seen but not loved but not seen. So Sarah asks, Heidi, you commented several times in Glory not being seen. Could you three discuss whether or not it is enough that she is seen by God? I mean, the story doesn't talk about that idea, but that is the thing that popped into my head every time you said it. I could hear your sadness, and while I do agree that on one level it is sad, on another level I think it is only sad if Glory chooses to see it as sad. So that's an interesting. Uh, take so respond to that one thing that we have talked about on the podcast between the three of us is the question of uh, glory's piety and whether or not she is truly uh, walking in close relationship with god or whether she's kind of representative of the older brother and has more of a distant kind of duty driven uh, relationship with god and i don't think the book answers that question completely um i think that that's ambiguous um i, I also i also think that we were that in in extraordinary circumstances in which people really don't have a family or, or loved ones, uh, friends, um, surrogate family um, to 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 love and embrace them, you know, people who are imprisoned and you know whatever kind of circumstances, um, that that there is a special grace and mercy for those people uh, from from God. And this is getting into theology well way past the book, um, but 
I do think that we were made to be in community and to be beloved by humans. We were not made to be disembodied and just to spend our lives trying to free ourselves from any need for human connection and just be close to God. Like there is something about the love of a family and friends that that is nourishing and necessary to a human soul. And, and, and in the extraordinary circumstance in which that isn't possible to have, there is grace for that. Uh, but in general, I don't think it's something we need to just try to free ourselves from and say, the only person who can ever needs to see me is God. Um, and, and so I do think that there's a real blow and a wound to the soul when that's missing. And I see that in glory, certainly throughout the book. Mm. SJ, you want to? Yeah, I think one thing this this question from Sarah has just made me think of is whether we Mm. discussed, do we think that Jack sees glory? Because I wonder whether throughout this novel, we get the sense that he does. And that Uh, although although glory has um, missed out on so many things, she has this privileged relationship with her brother, Jack, that none of the others have enjoyed or experienced or understood. And so there is that sort of um, redemptive quality to her mercy towards Jack throughout the novel. And mm. in terms of the, the point about piety, I, I'm very much in agreement with Heidi on everything she said, and especially the idea that it's not really clear whether Glory is, is living her life under the under the eyes of God, Coram Deo, she doesn't seem to. It's not very clear in the novel, is it, whether she mm-hmm. she thinks that God sees her or not. So, those are the things that I would be thinking about. That I think that Jack sees her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's why she is sad to see him go. Uh, in part, okay. Um, Here's a question related to to their relationship from Colleen. How do you read Jack when he says over and over again, some version of that's very kind of you to glory when she does something nice for him or says something nice to him. It seems dismissive to me, says Colleen. Is he unable to believe the compliments about himself or can he never really accept good things from glory because the one he needs approval from is his father. Sarah Jane, I'll let you take this one first if you'd like to. I... I think that's really great, attentive reading. And I remember you mentioning this um, in one of our podcasts as well, David. Could it be something along the lines of the woundedness of the character of Jack makes him unable to trust people and he can't receive kindness as kindness? And this is one of the things actually that his father is at odds with him about, that, that Jack was never able to accept the kindness of his family. And there's mm-hmm. something about the weight of shame that weighs Jack down, that makes him unable to, to accept that people can be kind to him. And I think that's, the novel shows it's a particular fault in him when he's unable to accept the kindness of glory. You might mm. forgive him if he's suspicious of people he didn't know um, behaving in a kind way towards him, but could it also be seen as a sort of pride as well that he wants to hold on to his brokenness and woundedness and doesn't want to bridge that gap um, with his family? So, Hmm. yeah, that's, that's, I think how I would think about that, that he's sort of wounded and suspicious and finds it hard to trust people. So, so let me ask the the, the two of you, I'll take a poll between the three of us. She says it seems dismissive when he says that's very kind of you. Is that, 
what word would you use to describe that reaction? Uh, Heidi, would you agree that he's being dismissive there? I think that, I think, I mean, we had a big long talk about this, about thank you, how she, th- how he thanks right. her all the time, you know? Right, and yeah. um, I, I really do stand by that. I don't know if I would use the word dismissive, although it could be dismissive. And I know what she's saying. I would use the word self-protective or I would use the word self-protective as if he's putting up this wall that like he has to treat his sister with politeness the way you would a stranger. Because if a stranger does those things to you, they are being kind. If your sister does, it's just because she loves you and your family. And you don't mm-hmm. have to say it's kind every time. Mm-hmm. So to kind of keep people, it's 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 like there's this moat around him. And so self-protective would be the word I would use. But I think if I were glory, I would hear it as dismissive. Mm. Yeah. Sarah Jane, would you say dismissive is the word? I'm trying I, to I, think what I, I absolutely get what um, Colleen has noticed here. Um, I wonder... It's something like mistrust or pride that is inhibiting Jack. And I'm I'm not sure what word I would use. But yeah, it could be seen as dismissive. But it's more like he's almost taken aback that anyone could um, make these sort of sacrifices for him because he spent so much time on his own living in difficult mm. circumstances. Hmm. I, I never read it as dismissive, um, but I also hear the word dismissive being very harsh, more harsh than I think I read him to be. I mean, it feels to me, I think self-protective is interesting, but it feels to me that he's... Again, this is another one of those things we probably need to go back to the text and look for it and try to find some textual evidence. But it seems to me that there's a sense in which he's being... Um, um, he doesn't totally believe for a, lot, for a while that she's really wanting to do what she's doing for him. Um, which maybe is another way of saying what you you guys are saying um but that he just doesn't he thinks she's being polite for the sake of being polite and i don't think that he's being dismissive i think he's genuinely thankful but he's also saying it's almost like i'm sorry it's more self-deprecating i think is how i read it that he's saying you you don't i don't i don't deserve this i know you're doing it just because you have to and i don't think that's the same thing as being dismissive although it might just be kind of what colleen was getting at like i don't think he's being i don't think he's saying it like rudely or in a way that's meant to kind of push her off. I I just think that he doesn't believe that people should do nice things for him. Mm. But in, in defense of what Colleen said mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. a way that is dismissive because he's saying what you're doing isn't kindness, glory. What you're doing is just um, routine Duty. or manners. So it yeah. is, it does dismiss it as kindness in but, a way. Yeah, that's fair. That is fair. Um, Anything else on this one? Trying to find this one. I should copy and paste these and reorganize them. But then, of course, the conversation goes various directions. So doing that would be the same difference as scrolling up and down. (laughs) Um, uh, Someone tell a joke. Um, I did loads of jokes last time and was told that they were like dad jokes. Oh, right. Well, wait, no, no, no. That's That's not a complaint. 
That's not a complaint. <laughs> um, okay, here's one. Erin um, asks, she, well, she does mention this is a few, a few podcasts behind, but I don't think we covered this in this way. She says, I keep thinking about Marilyn Robinson's treatment of the concept of parenthood, not just in home, but also in Gilead and even in housekeeping, since I've read all these recently, says Erin. From Ames to Boughton to Jack to even the grandmother, uh, the mother, the grandmother, and the aunts and housekeeping. There are some very striking parent, parenting or guardianship situations happening in all of these books. I'm sure this comes up in Lila and Jack as well. So far, I can't think of any that are terribly healthy. Maybe Ames and his son, except that, that it, except that it's such a short relationship. So Aaron says she'd love to hear our thoughts on what Robinson does with the idea of parenthood in a more general sense. Um, so, and now I'm curious if she's she herself is a parent. I believe she has three boys, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, she has um, I wonder what her boys think about this novel. Um, so she, she doesn't ask a specific question here and she, she says that she's not asking a specific question. She says it's a general sense. So I would say, do just offer one thought that you have uh, as parents on what Robinson's, uh, approach to storytelling about families, um, has to say about, about parenthood. I'm giving you an open-ended an open-ended uh, chance to answer here because the question gave you an open-ended uh, question. So uh, Heidi, what do you think? I think that Marilyn Robinson is telling the story of the American family. I think that she's hmm. less, uh, it's, it's less that she's making some kind of statement about what families ought to be and more that she's handing this kind of, fragile, flawed, um, universal kind of, I don't know, depiction of the American family and saying, look at this, like, look at this, look at this and all of its richness and beauty and sadness and grief and questions and, uh, you know, how, you know, she, she explores so many threads of what it means to be a family. How does what you believe about God and impact the relationships that you have in a family? How does, mm. how did, how does the memories of, of the past impact who you are as a family and the relationships and how does each other and their own, you know, look at Teddy and the kind of person that he is, even in the brief time he's in the novel because of Jack, we have this picture of this, this this man too, who was once a boy protecting his brother and is now a man protecting his brother. He's became a doctor. Like there's, there's just this, this very unified kind of paradoxically unified and fragmented vision of the American family. Um, and I don't get the impression that, that Robinson is trying to tell us how things ought to be as much as she's saying, look at this and what it is and what do you think about this and what do you feel about it? Um, so I, I don't even walk away from these thinking it's a cautionary tale about what a family ought not to be. I just walk away from these books feeling the weight of what a family is. Mm. Sarah Jane? Very much agree with Heidi on this. I, I think that Marilyn Robinson does a wonderful job of showing how hard it is to bring up children, how high stakes it is how easy it is to make mistakes, how those mistakes in themselves can be beautiful and life-forming. And I think she is so compassionate towards her characters. She, she shows the beauty in the suffering 
Um, mm. I'm interested in the choice of looking at parenthood specifically rather than fatherhood or motherhood, because I don't think she really does show us two, two characters um, parenting together ever. I think we often see fathers and mothers separately bringing up children mm-hmm. There yeah, are many which absent- might come from her own experience because she's she did a lot of parenting as a single mom. I see, and we we see a lot of um, absent mothers in the novel, or um, mothers who would like glory, who want to be mothers and and aren't. Um, mm. And so she, Glory's maternal efforts go in all sorts of directions. Um, but I I think it's a, a wonderfully sympathetic and beautiful portrait of mothers and fathers with a real acknowledgement of how much grace is involved in those mm. relationships. And mm. um, I'm really grateful that she wrote this novel like this, because as Heidi said, it doesn't, it doesn't set a standard that we're supposed to aspire to in some fictional world. It's um, it seems quite true. Mm. Yeah, it's a, rem- it's a reminder. You mentioned grace. It's a reminder of the grace that we have to kind of pursue. <laughs> um, there's a quote from that Robinson Robinson mentioned when she, because she wrote housekeeping in the seventies while her boys were very young and they were asleep at night. And she talked about how they influenced the writing of that novel a lot because quote, motherhood changes your sense of life, your sense of yourself and something both of you know that I do not know, but um, it's interesting that she seems to have once she, had children maybe her writing life took off in a new direction and of course she didn't write another novel for a long time but she did teach she taught writers she's one of actually probably the most influential writing teachers we have in this country in the last 25 years um for at the iowa writers workshop just the sheer number of writers that came out of came through her classrooms is kind of amazing and so it's interesting that after she became a mother that sense of of self that changed that sense of who she was began to produce, if I can use that word, this body of work. That's really incredible. Um, these, these five novels that are really well thought of um, and some of the signature novels of the, the last 30 years. Uh, and, and so it seems that she thinks of these roles of mothers and fathers as being like this really profoundly um, um, honorable, but thus also very challenging roles. And so, you know, it's the line with great power comes great responsibility, like the Spider-Man line, but in a way it's almost like there's this, there is a responsibility that comes with parenting, but there's also, it's, it's this, it's this profoundly important, but also deeply, um, um, I can't think of any other word than like, honorable, noble, not noble. It's not, I'm not it's, that's not the word I'm looking for, but it's important, but also um, weighty role. And it, it changes you in a profound way and how that changes you can come out in inexplicable ways sometimes. <laughs> and you make this, you, you make that you do things that you wish you couldn't do. That you wish you hadn't done all the time. And parenting is always this extension of grace. And then, asking for needing to be forgiven. <laughs> and that's a ten, that's kind of a tightrope that's very difficult to walk for anybody, even, even pastors. And I think that the fact that she presents these deeply pious, 
intelligent, smart, uh, caring men as complicated parents is a really important idea that's actually, um, if you read it in a certain way, can be very uh, encouraging or and not inspiring per se, because they make lots of mistakes, but also, um, you know, like a challenge in a good way, you know, um, and a reminder that, you know, even deeply pious, prayerful, spiritual, kind, intelligent, loving people make mistakes. And sometimes it's out of your hands and you have to trust God to take care of your children. <laughs> and that's in a way, both incredibly terrifying and also very encouraging, if that makes sense. And I think these novels capture that in a way that for me is at least uh, worth, uh, it makes it worth, it may help me remember that in a way that I think, like I said, it's, it's encouraging in a way, but also it's just one of those things you have to grasp onto and you can't let go of that. Um, so it kind of goes beyond whether it helps me. It's just something you have to remember. Is <laughs> that great quotation from Boughton. I can't remember exactly what he says, but he's having some kind of spat with Jack and he says something like, I can't forget those memories. It's my life which mm-hmm. I thought was quite a profound comment on what it must be like to be a father. That it's mm. not just about putting the right pictures in the photo album. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that takes us to the ending of the book, actually. And there's a question about the ending that I think we can transition to. Sarah says, she points out that when we were recording about The Sun Also Rises, we had a lot of discussion about how it wasn't a happy ending and that was okay, even good. So then why so much angst to use her word that this also didn't have a happy ending? And I think that's a fair question. Um, so Heidi, I'll let you go with this one first because uh, you, me and Tim, we talked about The Sun Also Rises. Uh, SJ, I assume you've read that Hemingway novel, right? Okay. So like as with a lot of novels, it didn't have a happy ending. And we talked we talked about how that's one of the, actually the great things that makes that his novels true, that they, he doesn't do anything that's outside of what the story demands, <laughs> the story that he's telling demands. So yeah, we spent a lot of time in over the last couple of weeks talking about the sadness at the end of this novel. Heidi, what's the difference? I, I couldn't tell you other than my own reaction. <laughs> Cause here's the thing. I, I, I read that question like 50 times and I have been walking around like who wrote that question? Say again, Sarah Bergren, I think is how you Sarah pronounce it. Sarah Bergren, you stumped me. You did. You have I'm sent her into a tailspin. <laughs> I'm not often stumped. I'm not often caught completely without a response. <laughs> David stumped me before. Um, and, but this question stumps me still. Like I've been thinking about it for a couple of days and I still don't have an answer. And other than, other than. <laughs> Not even a my, wrong one? No, I mean, other than just myself, like I read Hemingway uh, and I'm trying to come up with some differences. Uh, I mean, and there are some important differences. Hemingway's is a it's a lost generation novel. It's, uh, it's, it's not a novel about family intentionally. So the family's intentionally left out. This is a novel about drifting individual kind of stunted souls. It's about Jack Um, when he's gone. It's about Jack when he's gone, which I have read. I've now read Jack and I don't find it as sad as the family novels, the Gilead novels. So, Hmm. um, do you like it? But, yeah, I did. I liked okay. it. Okay. And it it is, I mean, you can hear Marilyn Robinson's voice, but by necessity, it's a very different kind of novel. Right, um, right. It, yeah. it, it's kind of a demystifying novel about Jack, hmm. um, 
which is an interesting kind of because he's the big mystery of this of the series, right? Yeah. So this yeah. is it's not a stripping away, but it isn't a deepening of the mystery of Jack. It's an illumination of the mystery of Jack, mm. um, which is an interesting choice uh, mm. for her. But anyway, I'm not here to talk about that. But that <laughs> sorry, no, I it is. Uh, I had to remind myself of that because I'm interested in, in this. I've been thinking about that too. But this particular question stumped me. And I think the answer is just, this is a, I, you know, this is, this is the illumination of this particular story felt so sad to me, probably if I'm being honest, because I, I want my own happy ending in family issues, right? Like, and so there's something about that, that be, that, that is, that feels unfinished to me. And so when I encounter it in a story, I I react to it. And I think that even goes back to some of the, the question that Krista asked earlier, why does it just feel like too much sometimes when you read a certain kind of novel, um, and something like Marilyn Robinson, uh, Okay, I'm going to make another connection between what you just talked about, David. Um, Her brain just said, like the synapses just did something there. They're firing. (laughs) And when you were talking, I was thinking there's this tenderness, and Sarah Jane, you said this too, there's this tenderness that Marilyn Robinson exhibits towards her own characters, this like love for them, but a willingness to see them. You know, like she sees them the way that they're not seen by each other um, and kind of weaves that into the novel. Like there's this compassion that you can tell she has towards all of her characters and she loves them so, so much. Like a mother loves her children. I have a theory that this is what makes a great writer. I think that's true, David. I definitely think that's true. And I think that because she's a mother and because she's a mother who knows what motherhood is in the sense that she is painfully and uh, joyfully united and with this desire for the good of her children, that she has put that into these characters. And then that awakens something in us Hmm. as readers, that desire for the good of these characters. Um, and, And because of that, we have this longing for them to experience the thing we want for them. And I, I, I think, I mean, even though I think Hemingway has, does write with like a gentleness towards his characters, they're not, we don't have the same kind of love for them that we might have for glory after reading this novel. And Mm -hmm. we know, like we have this sense of like, Oh, I just want someone to see her. And then when it doesn't happen, there's just a disappointment, which that disappointment can either be, you know, make you love the book or hate the book as Krista pointed out. Hmm. Esther, do you want to add to that? Well, it's been a while since I read a Hemingway novel, especially the sun also rises, but I think I'd want to draw out some comparisons between Hemingway and Robinson, which might help us to answer the question a bit. Mm-hmm. I would say that Hemingway strikes a tragic note and then indulgently riffs off that for an entire work. And they're <laughs> short and brutal. I mean, his famous six word short stories, For Sale, Baby Shoes, Never Worn. We almost Mm -hmm. go to Hemingway in order to be sad. And he is so, um, he's so Spartan and sparse and paired back in his writing that he invites you to fill the gap with your melancholy and sadness. And there's no question about what you're supposed to feel. And I think that 
in comparison to Robinson, a sad ending for Hemingway is climactic. And then for Robinson, a sad ending is anticlimactic because throughout the novel, we get sadness co-mingled with hope. So the reader is never mm. quite sure which way it's going to go. Mm. And, and we yearn for that happy ending, which is never offered in a, in a Hemingway novel. And so at the end of a Marilyn Robinson novel, you get the sense that maybe you've missed out on something that could have been better, whereas Hemingway has never promised you that. So I think that's why you can have two sad endings and one feels satisfying and right and the other feels unsatisfying. And the other thing I would just add is that it's, it's not quite an ending, is the other thing about Marilyn Robinson's novel, because she... She clearly wanted to write more about Jack and she sends him off in the sunset. Um, so there's also that big question that's still open. Mm. But it's, it's made me want to go back and read The Sun Also Rises again. <laughs> you should. Okay, Rachel asks a question about the uh, structure of the book. She says, why does Robinson write her books with few page breaks and no chapters? How does this help her tell her stories about these characters? Even though Gilead was in first person and home is in third person, she still uses the same uh, similar format. What other contemporary writers are using this style and or how has it been used up until now? Um, this is an interesting question and might need to do a survey of American lit on this one. Cormac McCarthy does I was this. Just about to say that. Yes. Um, what, Sarah Jane, what would you say about the style here? How does it help her do what she's trying to do? The, you know, how is she using this structure um, to, to create meaning? I, I don't know enough about how novels are edited to be able to say, does a writer present a manuscript and then an editor puts chapters in or does an author decide where the chapters go? I really don't know about that. And I wonder whether well, it's... Today, if an editor put chapters in and that author was established in any way whatsoever, that author would laugh at them and then find a new editor. <laughs> right. Yeah, I suppose. But if you're sort of Dickens or something, you just take it on the chin. <laughs> well, I mean, what's happening with Dickens is well, they're actually, putting it in the, uh, the he, next edition of the newspaper. That was not a dad joke. That was great. <laughs> he, but he edited his own stories, actually. He actually published his own magazine. So that I probably... would not call what they did editing. But... No. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I just remember reading that she, she says she writes really fast. Mm -hmm. um, so when she gets into writing a novel, she'll sit down within a week or two and kind of get it all down on paper. So maybe... She doesn't think in chapters. She thinks in terms of the whole narrative. Um, I quite, I quite like this style. I think it works really well for her and McCarthy. Yeah, I personally, I think that a lot of the time it has it, it. It can sometimes prove a necessity for writers, based on one, on the one hand, what you're describing there and how they how they think, but on the other hand, it has a lot to do with point POV, point of view, and perspective, and and how they want characters. Um, well, perspectives or point of views to be revealed to the reader. Mm. There's a sort of, um, um, uh, it's not stream of consciousness, but there's a sort of, um, wanderingness to this sort of structure that is consistent with how people often will think, imagine, experience things. Uh, it's as if almost like d journal entries in a way. Um, that makes it, 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 it allows it to not feel 
like a pattern that builds to some kind of coherent ending. As you said, her books are often end in an, end in an anticlimax and anticlimactically. And so to not have chapters, I think if you have a series of chapters with what seems like a, a coherent structure, I'm not saying this is, this is incoherent, but it seems like it seems like with chapters, it's building towards a final chapter here. It builds towards a fi- It's a series of moments or reflections that build to the last moment or reflection. And I think that that makes it, you know, I think that that allows the reader to be prepared in a way, even if they don't know that they're being prepared for the novel to end on the edge of a cliff, if that makes sense, or in the middle of a path or whatever imagery you want to use for that. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does definitely you- in terms of verisimilitude to have that continuity. Yeah. And I was thinking an extreme yeah. example of, of, um, the other kind of novel that you're alluding to is something like As I Lay Dying, where every vignette right, yeah. is from a different character's perspective. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sound and the Fury. Basically, Faulkner does all kinds of things that, with point of view that are um, one of the reasons why we probably haven't done this on the show yet because it'd be, <laughs> it's a little bit difficult. Uh, did I say Faulkner? You did. Uh, okay. All right. In my head, I, I said Faulkner, I guess. And then afterwards I was like, did I just say Hemingway? Um, <laughs> Heidi, do you want to add to this? If we move on? Do you have any no, thoughts? I mean, I, I do think just a quick thing that it, that in these character driven novels, I think it's a really nice style because it, it, it becomes less about what's happening in the novel divided from the next thing that's happening in the novel and more that it's this coherent um, insight into the the characters and the unfolding kind of inner narrative versus plot yeah you know points yeah 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 okay Heidi I want to ask this one this one next one to you first this is from Jill she asks if we can revisit the theme of shared meals we touched on it earlier she points out and she says would love to hear your take on the role of family meals now that we've finished the whole book so many conversations happen around food but as I quickly think through the book, my initial impression is that the most honest words happen at other times, the barn, the garden, the bedside, are the examples that she uses. What, that's the end of her comment, but what might uh, uh, Robinson be doing with that, uh, given that we, the book sets us up to believe that, you know, mealtime is the sort of essential, most essential time. Right. Um I think the idea of nourishment and a shared meal is almost always intentionally or not some kind of sacramental image within a story. It's a, it's a, um, it's a gathering and a partaking and a nourishment um, image. And so when there's some kind of brokenness that happens at a shared meal, uh, there's, there's a poignancy to it. There's, there's uh, a sense of, of, of the broken nature of a communion, um, between people. And, uh, and of course it's also quite realistic, right? That's where most of most family drama takes place around the table. Somebody says something wrong and it sets somebody off and, you know, or it's awkward or whatever. Um, and so there is a sense of realism to it. And also on a deeper level, there's this symbolic nature of what a mealtime represents a, a gathering, a sharing and, mm-hmm. and a communion, um, that, that is both nourishing. And then, uh, because of its potential f- for redemption 
it, it also has an equal kind of uh, weight of failure to it when, when that image fails to be gathering and ends up being fragmenting. Looks mm. mm. good. Uh, SJ? Well, many of the meals in the novel are nostalgic and also create a kind of, well, Glory creates a sense of disappointment around them that she has been unable to reproduce something that her mother would have cooked better. Um, mm. There's this kind of perplexity about the quality of dumplings. And so <laughs> one of the things that really interested me about the, the family meals is that it's not really about the food. So it's definitely about the fellowship. And I wondered if they kind of build towards the moment where Ames comes round and gives Boughton communion. And that's sort of the most perfect meal in the novel, which the children are really grateful for um, in a way that the other meals have this kind of awkwardness and tension. And so I wonder if there's a sort of symbolic completion in that communion that's delivered at the end. But That's good. Yeah. Um, Carol asks she says Jack covers his face with his hands throughout the book it's repeated so many times it feels like a literary device she says it illustrates illustrates Jack's shame of course but is there more please discuss thanks Heidi any thoughts on this is you think it's more than more than that uh no I think that it is that and I think that that is um enough like he's putting up a, a wall between himself and others with his hands um it it illustrates his, his need to hide yep the wearing of the mask and then uh his scar beneath his eyes mentioned several times which i think is like to me that that brings up the idea of the mark of cain that he is hiding his shame or and also when he touches it finding identity in it as well as trying to hide it um so uh yeah, I think, I mean, it's played with just, I mean, just beautifully throughout the novel. Robinson does, I mean, it's it's just one of the most noticeable and both both noticeable and subtle ways that she uh, illustrates Jack's. Mm. Um, his smile as well shows his mm. smile and his laugh and the touching of the face. Uh, anything having, and which is tied in with identity, like his identity and his shame are so connected uh, that that it is always in his face which is the individual identity where that shame is revealed and manifested in relationship. So I think it's a very profoundly complex um, symbolic addition, like masterful on Robinson's part. Yeah. And natural. Like that's the kind of exactly. thing people really do. Yeah, like yeah. it's it, not just literary. That's yeah. like I was just, just gonna say human. That, yeah. 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 And that's when the best, like that's the difference. There's another difference between great authors and mediocre authors because the great mm -hmm. author takes the literary device and makes it human you know they, mm -hmm. they 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 use they make they they take things that people really do really say really feel whatever and then they 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 imbue them with a sense of meaning uh, because and what they they're doing that they manage to do that because of consistency because they have a there's a through line throughout the whole book that 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 action or whatever links to right well great novelists are i mean always great psychologists right they're creating something out of their understanding of human nature yeah which is maybe 
why very few people can be great novelists. Um, okay, we got a couple more here. This is from Anastasia. Okay, here we go. Why does the role of home equals heaven? Or, or what does the role of home equals heaven? play into the story. I've wondered about that theme since the beginning, especially since Boughton dies and glory of all people is the returning daughter to come home and care for him. Is there anything in that in this novel? Do you think Heidi? I, when I read that question, I thought that was really insightful because I hadn't made that connection at all, which probably shows that I, my failure to read it, um, that or to read it closely, I guess. Um, and I've, I did think about that after I read it and thought, I wonder if there, if there is this idea of (laughs) there's, this isn't their true home. I, but yeah, I was curious when I heard, when I read that question on the question thread, um, whether, uh, there was some kind of invitation in, in the novel to see past their house into their true home and if there is i think it's pretty subtle and i didn't catch it david how about you yeah i don't i don't think i noticed that in that way (laughs) but it's a good question because and and one that i if it's not there then i wonder at the absence of it because i think it's a really important question because you would think that for a christian family specifically for a pastor nearing death that the question of his true home as being in the kingdom of God, the heavenly realm would be more on the forefront of conversation and mm-hmm. more in more. You'd, you'd think that that would be kind of a defining characteristic mm-hmm. of the journey towards death. I hope that for me, it will be, I hope I'll be imagining and thinking about the kingdom of God uh, as I settle my, you know, put my affairs in order here in my <sighs> earthly home. So it, the question made me wonder, mm-hmm. like either I missed something or, or it's conspicuously absent. And why is that? I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? SJ had to step away to, to care for yeah, Elizabeth. I don't, I don't, um, I don't know. I, when I said I didn't notice it, I, I'm not saying it wasn't there. I just, it's just not something that occurred to me, but it's a great point that glory is the one that comes home and cares for him as he's going to be. Uh, entering into glory, as they say, it's like from glory to glory. Um, wow. I, I, um, I don't know about, I don't know whether it was conspicuously absent. I'd have to, I feel like that's another thing I have to go back and read again. Like mm-hmm. the conversations in this book are so dense and the psychology mm-hmm. of it is of the moments is is so intense that um, you almost have to go back and read them with certain questions in mind because they wash over you with sort of an intensity that's hard to put into context in the moment. Um, that's, um, it's a good question. Um, but I think, um, I think the novel is contemplating notions of, like different kinds of homes. It's not just the one home. I think that's one of the reasons why the book is called home and not glory as somebody, somebody asked about that earlier. Um, and I think it, in that, um, that contemplation has to be there as well. The idea of, um, I, I think implicit, um, or, or on the margins at least is, 
maybe it's the conspicuously absent thing is the idea that the home that is to come in glory will be without the issues that attend the home on earth, you know, before glory, so to speak. Um, and I think that's part of why Boughton is so concerned for the soul of Jack. It's in part because he wants there to be union with the family in glory. Um, and he longs for that. He longs to, for the, for them all to be together again. Um, I think that's why he gets so tired in a way of the conflict because all he wants is for there to be union, for there to be peace and for the discord to end. And so the suggestion that that could happen one day seems to be sort of implicit within the, the ongoing drama of the family. And, um, and so I think in, in that way it, that it's there, uh, but I hadn't thought about it quite in the way that the question asked about it. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to another question just for the sake of time here. This is from Zena. She, um, she says she's the one that asked about the title of home and not glory. And we can come back to that in a little bit, but she also says, I feel like there's a strong thread of forgiveness and compassion among the women in this book, Glory, Lila, and Della. It seems like the men all dance around the need to apologize first or to recognize each other by name or respect or have heady conversations. The women have had to navigate forgiveness differently and it seems to not require the person asking for forgiveness. So then, well, this of course is maybe a question for a pastor or a priest or someone. So then which is the more godly way of forgiving? That reconciliation is there only if you ask for it or is it that it will and, sh- and should be there or should be extended regardless? I think one of the most remarkable moments is when Della comes up to Gilead searching for Jack. She has forgiven. He hasn't come to her. So she almost like the parable of the lo- the shepherd tries to find him like a lost sheep. Um. What do you think about this, Heidi? This uh, and SJ's back now, so welcome back, SJ. The uh, the the question here is that there's a strong thread of forgiveness and compassion among the women. Um, they don't dance around. They don't seem to need to apologize first or or state it. Whereas it seems like the men need to to they navigate it differently and have to. Um, they want they want it to be stated. It seems like. And then the question, Sarah Jane, is so then which is the more godly way of forgiving? That reconciliation is there only if you ask for it or that it would be there and extended regardless? This is, I said, I said, as I was reading it the first time, this might be a question for a pastor or a priest or someone like that and not three uh, people who are just literature enthusiasts (laughs) that happen to have microphones in front of them. But it could at least be, it's at least an interesting conversation. I don't know the answer. I think that's a brilliant question and really hard to answer. And it's a question I've asked a lot of times myself as well, not in relation to this novel. but Just throughout your life. Can you forgive someone if they haven't asked for forgiveness? I don't know. I mean, yeah, we're not theologians. So what it, I suppose Christ forgives regardless doesn't he says forgive them father for they know not what they do so i suppose that's one place to look um and yet the church 
teaches that we need to confess. Yeah, exactly. Um, but confession, I guess, is a different thing than asking for forgiveness. At least, I mean, you, when you confess, you ask forgiveness of God. But it's it's difficult to think that you can, that there can be forgiveness if there's no repentance, and that seems to be the problem that Jack encounters, isn't it? That he doesn't make this confession that we're hoping for in a, in any overt way. He even contemplates lying to his father at the end about faith that he doesn't truly possess. Um, But if we yeah, want to yeah. say in the in the novel that the women are more godly than the men, I'm really happy to go with that. <laughs> Heidi, what do you think? Do you agree um, that the women are more godly than the men? I think, I mean, in the context of forgiveness, Della is, I mean, Della's presence at the end is remarkable. It's immediately healing to glory. And the thing that Glory longs for is that Jack could have been there um, to experience it because she she believes that it would have been healing and redeeming to Jack as well. And I I think that that's true. Um, I, I don't know that I see Glory having any profound moment of um, restorative forgiveness she seems to be carrying on at the end very much as she does at the beginning um she's a softer kind of person she doesn't this is she's not yeah i don't i i think she's a a peacemaker type like she's she has this gentleness to her um and i don't think she's a bitter angry person but she has much to forgive that seems just to be just as rankling to her soul at the end of the book as it has been throughout. Um, but she does have this tenderness to her. Um, that's very different from is the it, men. Is it possible that she, you said she doesn't have this big moment of forgiveness or whatever word you used. And yet so many of the actions that she takes imply that she's forgiven or are acting in a sort of love towards Jack Mm -hmm. and towards her father that the, even if she doesn't feel a sort of like, Oh, I forgive you. It's fine. Feeling within her, the actions themselves themselves are so full of love that they, although they perhaps don't imply forgiveness, maybe that's the wrong word. They are the actions of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. I'm Um, a loving person. She has like this, tender this posture of humble generosity well so then is it possible is it possible that the same thing could be true for the other side here that 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 jack's got he he pursues actions where the action themselves the actions themselves are a sort of asking of forgiveness towards in his relationship specifically with glory or towards his father like is it when he is so tender to his father and takes care of him and cares mm-hmm. for him and and does the thing and tries to you know calm him and play the piano like ever are all these actions acts uh, uh ask and asking of forgiveness and every time glory cooks him food and or he when he works in the gardens there and he tries to restore the home he's trying to do things that his father loves and so by doing those things that his father love loves is he asking for forgiveness through his actions although he has not he is not saying it and in in the way that glory does and and are the in are those actions in in light in in that sense 
um, less meaningful than to state the word out loud, I beg your forgiveness. It's a good question. That last one's a really good question. Yeah, I think he is doing that. I think that he came home to serve his father and to find out if he could have his family there. And I think that he cares for his father as a as as a way of of penance, but I don't mean that in the self punishing kind of sense. I think I mean that in the sense of like, let me show you that I'm here, mm-hmm. that I'm involved in a way I've never been. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I think that offering is in some ways either unseen or rejected by yeah. Boughton, which is why I felt so viscerally frustrated with Boughton throughout the entire novel. I kept like, what do you want? I could, do you want him to do or say something, but he's doing and saying this other thing that means nothing to you. Why don't you try to see that? Yeah. He, he doesn't recognize it, which is really interesting because that brings mm. us to another question that Colleen and I didn't go back and check if it's the same Colleen, but she says early in the story is the incident of the neighbor who slowly takes over the Boughton's field. This is a story from when they were younger. It illustrates Boughton's tendency to just remain silent in the face of difficult situations, as he also does with his difficult son. Do you think he remains silent because he can't formulate what the appropriate Christian response should be? What is the effect on his kids who watch the situation unfold? How might it have affected Jack? Is Jack's misbehavior as a young person perhaps an attempt to provoke some kind of response from his father? I find all these questions very interesting. I don't know that like the book tells us per se, but that I, th- I think it's a great point that it's not new that the father chooses to remain silent and doesn't know how to respond to situations that sort of confound him. And I think it's compelling that maybe he doesn't know what the appropriate Christian response should be. Like he has these deep, deeply theological uh, pious ideas of what proper action should be. But when confronted with real life situations and people who are sinners and all those sorts of things, actually acting out that piety becomes much more challenging. Um, Do you think that that might be part of why he doesn't know how to, he doesn't either doesn't recognize or doesn't know how to respond to Jack's, um, action actions of penance sarah jane yeah either of you yeah sorry yeah i wonder so he you're right he does not recognize jack's sort of confessional service if you like Mm -hmm. but there is a sense that the problem is not that he can't respond it's that the response he wants to give is is too sharp and hard and jack can't handle it and there is a time in the novel, isn't there, where he does just say what he thinks for a while. And it, we, as the reader, think that, that this is a kind of breakthrough. But um, Boughton, I thought as a character, rather than not knowing what to say, he rather just doesn't say anything in order to um, avoid making the situation worse. Mm. And the example of the dispute with a neighbour, I thought perhaps that does illustrate this idea of him offering some kind of forgiveness in advance of any apology. Um, because clearly the land does belong to him, but he he just um, offers it up. Hmm. Right. There's a long... I mean, it, it is, it's hard to know. It's hard to know when to speak and when to be silent, right? And there's, you know, a whole book of the Bible dedicated to the fact that some, this is, that life is really hard. Ecclesiastes specifically says there is a time to speak. There is a time to be silent. There's not one 
moral law that covers all situations, uh, even within the Christian faith. And, and I think that this book, man, does that highlight that these characters don't seem to know when to speak and when to be silent. When Boughton speaks, like you said, Jack can't handle it. Um, you know, that's, or maybe he was speaking at the wrong time. Maybe he didn't have said anything. Maybe, maybe, maybe gentleness and kindness, you know, like that. And, and we have to, we have to give ourselves as Robinson does the grace to say, even you can love somebody and do the wrong thing and, and say the wrong thing and hurt, hurt people. But here's the thing about the, about the, uh, the land there's, I think that this novel takes place in a very specific time in American Christianity and, and in which there was this sense of, and I mean, that this is, there was this sense in this time of you let yourself be abused to show love, right? I mean, this was the time that we, people were telling women who were actually being abused, stay in your marriage, forgive your husband, right? Stay, allow, allow yourself to be, to receive blows and then say nothing about it. And this is what Boughton does with Jack. When Jack impregnates this farm girl and then abandons her and Boughton is so so he feels so betrayed and in order to try to forgive Jack he says nothing right and it and it and it and the question that we're left with as readers was was that the right thing is he just repeating the same cycle that he did with this these people on his who lived on his land that kind of tacitly took over was this a time to speak was it a time to be silent did he miss his chance when he should have uh kind of had more of a, a parental role and said to jack this far shall you go but no farther you have to stay and you have to 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 take care of this girl and whatever like, should he have spoken then? Did that make the rift worse? And I think Marilyn Robinson is asking these questions. And that the issue of him being a landowner and letting these people take over the land slowly and slowly and slowly is a way of bringing up this question, not only in the family, but in the society in general um, and in American Christianity. Are we doing a good job of of balancing forgiveness and accountability and is being run over by other people's sins, the same thing as forgiveness. And, and she's asking these questions by the, by showing these rifts in these people's lives. Um, And, and we, as the readers interpret them and we interpret them differently as we, as from each other, as we know, but I think that's what she's trying to bring to the surface. Well, then there's glory though. And glory is a peacemaker. Right. Um, I think that's important that she's the person in, in the middle who's trying to, you know, every time there's a moment of conflict, she's trying to make a peace. She's trying to make peace out of it, you know, and sometimes she's trying to, and that's, she's trying to use food. I mean, use is the wrong word, but she, you know, she's hoping that food will bring them together and all that. Um, she's constantly weeping, right? Weeping for the sins of the world. Yeah, it's a very Marian image. She wants her father to forgive him and she wants Jack to forgive himself. Um, but what I like about glory and this, I really loved about her. She doesn't just 
she doesn't just want to smooth things over. I think she knows how deep these things go because she's not just scrambling to get everybody to be nice. A lot of those like peacemaker types are like, you just be nice and you just be nice and you just like sit around the table and you be nice. Like Glory knows that there's something deep going on. She doesn't know how to solve it. Mm -hmm. So she tries to kind of, as you said, bring people together around a meal. Um, But she's not just trying to force people into niceness. And I, I appreciate that about her. Um, yeah. That's all. Sarah Jane, do you have anything you want to add to this? I was just thinking more about the question that Cody asked about Barton avoiding confrontation. And it's a, mm-hmm. it's a really interesting paradox in his character because he seeks out certain kinds of confrontation. He wants to have these clashes with Ames and he wants to argue yeah, that's true. Uh, theoretically. Um, but when it comes to more complex debates, things that where there aren't two clear cut sides to an argument, then he either holds his tongue or behaves in a way that's uh, inconclusive, I suppose. Um and I haven't, I haven't thought enough about what Marilyn Robinson is doing, but there are many Marxist references in this novel and <laughs> in Gilead. And this is, there's this conflict sort of running through underneath the narrative. And um, I would want to look at that in more detail before saying something really blunt. But there, there is, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that his, <laughs> his neighbour is a kind of, is a, is a Marxist and Jack keeps reading Marxist works and so does Ames's brother in the first novel. And there's this kind of divide. Mm-hmm. And then there are all these questions of social unrest, um, the disenfranchised, poor people, things like that, people of color, you know, rejecting the structures that, and then it being on TV and these, these guys arguing about it. I think the big thing is that for, for Bowden, he is so much more comfortable um, in the world of abstraction. And then when the abstract ideas that he likes to argue and discuss with Ames become, they intersect with real people. He becomes less sure of himself, uh, which I think is probably a very human response. Like that's probably how we should all feel. We should all feel much less sure of ourselves when <laughs> it comes to how we interact with people. Um, but I think that also makes it very difficult for him to know how to interact with the children who need him and other people and other people who need him as well. Um, the abstractions can only take us so far. Um, we should probably begin to wrap this up. So um, Heidi, any final thoughts on this book? And then SJ, we'll let you have the last word. I do have a final thought and that's that it was it was painful for me to read this book. This has been the most painful read I've had on close reads. And, but now that I'm, now that we've gotten through it, it has, it's, it's one of, it's the book I think that's going to stick with me past reading it on the show. Um, which I love all the books we read on the show. Um, (laughs) almost without exception. Uh, but I didn't love reading this and, but now that I'm, now that we're done, I just, it's like given the, you me didn't such love the rich. experience you mean? Like it was. Yes. Yeah. I didn't love reading it. Um, and I, if it wasn't for the show, I wouldn't have finished it. But, and I think because it's just, there's just this weight of sadness to it for me. 
And I know some of our readers have experienced that in the same way. And I'm just so, but I'm grateful for it because it's sparked all these rich, like these very rich thoughts on, um, on family and forgiveness and the nature of writing. And what does it mean to write a sad book? I like imagine myself trying to write something like this and I don't think I would be courageous enough to do it. Like it takes a lot of courage. You have to put, you have to make your character suffer. Um, and but she creates such an incredible world of, you know, almost this, it is almost like she followed a family, an American family and wrote down everything they said and did from inside their heads. And, but she just made it all up, which is amazing. So um, I just, I mean, bravo, hats off to Marilyn Robinson. I'm a huge fan after I'm done with the books. I remember kind of feeling the same way about Gilead. Like once I was done, I'm like, I loved that book. But while I was reading it, I just felt sad. All right, SJ, your turn. Do you want to, did you also feel sad? Oh, yeah. I still can't believe you read it postpartum. That's amazing. I heard a little rumor that you like ranking things, David Kern, and I wondered. We we know we've got yeah. the fifth novel that we haven't all read yet, but of the four that we've got, I, I was while Heidi was answering, I was thinking, where would I rank Home in the trilogy? And Ooh, good question. With Housekeeping, I'm not sure if it's my favorite one. I think it's absolutely necessary as a kind of bridging. Um, piece to the narrative my favorite character is Ames and I think that probably is also Marilyn Robinson's favorite character and she clearly wasn't finished with Jack I think perhaps she felt she'd been a bit unfair to him and needed to say more about him which is why she wrote the other novel so I don't know where either of you would put would rank home in the trilogy I have read all three I think I might I think I might put it third. So Lila second, Gilead first? Yeah. And then housekeeping, where would that fall if you included that? I see that as almost like a parallel in that it's yeah, it yeah. kind of has all three perspectives in one. Mm-hmm. And then this trilogy has given us a more drawn out version of the some of the techniques she was using in housekeeping. Well, I think housekeeping is much tighter. Mm-hmm. Well, once you read Jack, we'll have to get you to give us the your ranking of all four. The official Sarah Jane Bentley, Marilyn Robinson r- ranking, I guess is the word. You've read all of, I haven't read Lila. You've read all of them except Jack, right, David? Yes. So yes. where, how would you rank them? Uh, oh, Holmes, my favorite. Holmes, your favorite. Oh, yeah. I'm so Hi. sorry for putting it third. <laughs> well, I'm not offended by other people's rankings. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I love Gilead. Um, Lila was a hard, the hardest of, for me to read. Um, don't know why. Um, but most people, I don't think that's true for most people. I think it was just the stage of my life. I read Home. Home came out when I was, it came out in what, 2009? Eight? Eight, I think. So I was, I remember, I mean, I read it when I was in college and I just was, I remember sitting there in this, this garden on campus and just reading it like over the course of a week in between classes. So there might be a nostalgia factor. And I think it's got a lot of things that, um, are maybe necessary for young men, you know, to, Mm -hmm. to read, even if you're not in the same situation as Jack or whatever, there's still a lot to, 
to glean from it. And I think most young men are in some degree or other either um, in some approximation of Jack's situation when they're starting their adult life or they're on the verge of, you know, they're, they could make a decision or two that could take them in that direction in 20 years. But I think most men who are about 21, 22, getting ready to start their adult lives or, you know, their own lives, they're not that they could make one decision and things could go off the rails. So, so uh, maybe that's why this book was uh, the one that sticks with me. So maybe it's pure nostalgia that just leads me to do that. Now, maybe in three years, I'll read them all again in order. And I'll be like, eh, no, nah, Lila's the best. She's right. Or Gilead's the best. And I do. I do love Gilead though. Me too. Um, I don't, I don't, I haven't read housekeeping in so long. And I don't know that I even read it like cover to cover situation. I think I read some of it stopped for a while reread read some more stopped for a while so i don't know that i've really had a good cohesive experience with with that and i definitely didn't do that with lila i read that in fits and starts so i need to sit down read it cover to cover over the course of a couple weeks or something and tell you come back to you that's what that's what my final decision is i'm gonna equivocate i just ordered it i I, while we were talking right now (laughs) i just ordered it from goldberry books um so i'll be reading it shortly i'm excited well, she i loved her I, I i think she's amazing yeah, I, yeah. She's maybe I, you'll my like favorite. that you'll like that one i think yeah okay well we should go um we have been here for um a fortnight it feels like and um <laughs> so we should wrap it up sarah jane thank you so much for joining us joining us on this series we can't wait to have you back whenever you are available we know that you are uh back into the thick of things at eaton and thus your time has, is uh, being claimed by people who are more important, but including your daughter and your husband. So, but, so thank you for making the time for us right now. You are welcome. And I wanted to thank everyone for their patience with me during these episodes with Elizabeth. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> well, the, the one who really had to deal with it the most was uh, Logan. So as always, just want to shout out Logan for his hard you work. You were going to say it. you. Yeah, it was me. It was me. <laughs> no, I meant her. I thought you were oh, going to say the person who had oh. to deal with the most was you. Well, of course. Yeah. Which is She really had to deal with it. But Logan. But true. I just Logan met, you know, sure. of the people yes. she's apologizing <laughs> to. You had no reason to apologize. We all understand. We get it. Uh, but thanks to Logan. I'll just thank Logan anyway. Thanks to Logan for, for his work producing and uh, editing the show so everyone should should be aware of how much logan does for us and i'm trying to be more uh you know remind people more about that so all right sarah jane until we see you next time this is your last chance to say comments on anything so you have just say one sentence on anything in the universe by way of saying farewell i'm happy reading close readers that was perfect that was perfect so now i'm not even going to say it at the end i want to allow you to say it uh so uh that's it we're just gonna end the show here sarah jane said it she gave you the the thing we say and bye hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.